Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. I know you can't tell from sound alone, but I'm not at Dewey Decibel headquarters in downtown Chicago right now. I'm recording this from home, and I hope those of you listening are sequestered in your homes right now, too. I won't lie, I uh, I struggled with how to open this episode. What to say to a world that seems to be changing by the minute thanks to the COVID-19 virus. We debated even doing the episode at all. But despite everything that's happening around us, we can't forget who we are and what we do. It's still March, and it's still Women's History Month, something that's unfortunately being overshadowed. But not here. Not now. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, join us as we talk to authors Mickey Kendall and Roxanne Gay, and Marilyn Harhey, professor of library science at Clarion University, about feminism, storytelling, and the 19th Amendment, which granted American women the right to vote 100 years ago. But first, a word from a sponsor. Does your library have books? What about patrons? If so, why don't you give Shelf Care a listen? That's right. Shelf Care, the podcast, is where we talk all things reader's advisory, collection development, and other library-related bookish stuff from your pals at Booklist. Past episodes have covered horror and cookbooks and graphic novels and beach reads, and that's just the beginning. Subscribe to Shelf Care, the podcast on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or from whence you are currently listening to our Dewey Decibel friends. That's Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast. Happy reading! Mickey Kendall is an author, activist, and cultural critic based here in Chicago whose new book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women of Movement Forgot, was released in February. She spoke with American Library's editor-at-large, Ann Ford, about the book and more. So the title of your book is Hood Feminism. What is Hood Feminism? Hood Feminism is really lived feminism, working class. I grew up um, on the south side of Chicago. And from my experience, even the people who don't necessarily have the jargon that you would expect, the academic jargon, they're doing the work to make women safe, to make sure they're fed, fighting for equality, all of that. And you see it in activist groups. You see it in the woman who starts a tiny group out of her garage so the kids have a safe place to hang out. You see it in people like Tamara Manasi of Mothers Against Senseless Killing, who decides in a neighborhood with a lot of shootings, what it means is people on the street, adults physically on the street, interacting with those kids. Even if the police don't like it, we see the shootings go down, right? Because these are all things that affect women. And if you grow up in the hood, your concerns really aren't necessarily how to become a CEO. Your concerns are how to make sure that the school in your neighborhood stays open, 
that there are groceries available, that you can afford the grocery store in your neighborhood, that your landlords not evicting you, your friends, whatever, or running, you know, essentially a slum building that's falling apart and you can't get help. You, you know, you're paying your rent, but no one's helping you make sure that the housing you live in is up to basic standards. And so I, I think of it in my own head anyway, hood feminism being feminism for people who don't have as much power and privilege and access. And that doesn't mean people with power and privilege can't also believe in these same values, but it does mean that perhaps the conversation that feminism is having has shifted. It's always been fairly middle class, but it's shifted to a point now where we're really not discussing basic needs. And, you know, in America where we're having these conversations about the 99% and we're seeing, you know, an ever widening wealth gap between certain classes and certain races and all of these things, you are looking at a feminism that says, well, Here's how to date while feminism, while feminist. Here's how to um, get a better promotion. But we're not talking about what it means to not be able to get hired because of discrimination against your hair or your Because feminism has to worry about those things. It has to address the needs of the many and not the wants of the few. Do you get much feedback or kickback, as the case may be, from white women who hear this and they get concerned less with what you're saying and more about how like their own identity and how they think they're being perceived and they start saying things to you like no no no, I'm not one of these these elite feminists you're talking about I didn't vote for Trump I have a Black Lives Matter sign in my yard there's a certain amount of that um I have perhaps developed a reputation for reminding people that this is really not about their feelings and it's not about what would make them comfortable um, because I have a saying, which is not my saying, but I, I sometimes say it to people when they really get hurt. Why do you think your feelings are my priority? And I, I ask the question and sometimes they, they get it in that moment like, oh, wait, right, these are my feelings. Why would they be your priority? And sometimes they tell me I'm mean, and I ask them who told them I was nice. And we proceed from there. But there's a certain amount of what I would call not not all white women, right? Not all white feminists. And they don't necessarily want to hear that even if they didn't vote for Trump, they may be complicit in other ways. That they may be the person who stands up, you know, at a school board meeting in New York and says, well, I don't want to change the district lines because then it'll hurt my kid. Well, I don't want to change the test or the admissions policies. You know, if you're saying, well, yeah, we want diversity, but we don't want to reduce quality, that's your racism. It's not cross-burning, lynching racism, but then most racism isn't cross-burning, lynching racism, right? If you're uncomfortable with well, I don't want those people and insert here for those people. It can be trans people. It can be black people. It can be uh, migrant workers. I don't want those people in my area. I don't want facilities for homeless people, all of these things. That's your bigotry. You're, you're okay with some women being harmed as long as you're comfortable. And they're really unhappy about that. I'm not going to say that people love this, this comparison. But ultimately, if you're telling me you're not one of those white feminists, then that means you're working for towards equity, not just towards 
more for yourself and people who look like you. And you stress too in the book that white feminists need to be willing to have difficult conversations. What do you think those conversations might look like? I think some of those conversations literally have to be between white feminists and their families, right? We, we talk a lot in feminism about the patriarchy and combating the patriarchy. Well, the patriarchy isn't actually this amorphous force that, you know, sort of descends from heaven and does things. It's people. It's your uncles, it's your cousins, it's your brothers, it's your dad, it's your spouse. It sometimes is you. And you need to be willing to understand that, A, there's more than one kind of patriarchal issue happening here and that different cultures have different problems. So every woman's got to do that work internally. But also, if we're talking about the major white male patriarchy in in a white supremacist society, the people best positioned to challenge it are white women, but they're also the ones who sometimes benefit from it. So there's a, a difficult conversation to have when someone says, well, you know, I would never vote for Trump, but my mom and my sister, well, what did you say to your mom and your sister? Well, I didn't want to make Thanksgiving uncomfortable. So are you willing to combat what's happening? Are you just, you don't want to have a fight? Which, which one is it? Because sometimes that's a difficult conversation. Sometimes it's a difficult conversation with yourself, right? Why are you uncomfortable challenging things you know are wrong? When you're at work and you know that your coworker who has braids, for instance, isn't getting a promotion because of her braids, are you saying anything about that? Are you saying anything to the staff at the school that says, oh, those kids, those kids are always in trouble? You walk into the principal's office, and there's a line of young black children. But you know that three white kids were in the fight. That is why the kids are in the office. And it's not saying that those kids who were fighting shouldn't be in trouble. But are you saying anything about racial dynamics in this place? Are you saying anything about whether or not, you know, the access to your event? Can someone in a wheelchair get into this event? Can they get into the workplace? Are you making the world diverse and inclusive around you as best as you can? I'm not expecting the individual person to do everything. I'm expecting the individual person to use what power and privilege they do have to help when they can. So where are you seeing hope and progress right now? I'm actually seeing it, oddly enough, and this is not an endorsement, but I am seeing it in some of the support for um, Elizabeth Warren's policies, some of the conversations that Kamala Harris and some others were having, I'm starting to see people really start to engage with the idea that if we want a better world, we have to do something to create a better world. We can't just sort of passively wait for it to show up. You know, I know that there are people who are pro-Bernie or um, pro-Biden, Klobuchar, all of that, and this is, like I said, not an endorsement, but it's, it's interesting to see, even though many of these folks who politically I don't completely agree with, starting to have meaningful conversations about the idea that things can be materially improved by taking care of people, right? So when we're talking about student debt, access to affordable college, food stamps, or other programs that would raise the minimum wage, that kind of thing, it makes me feel like possibly we're headed in the right direction. We've taken a short detour in the wrong direction, but the course correction makes me feel like people realize, oh, wait, maybe we do have to actively do something if we want things to improve. And that's necessary. 
ALA Job List is the award-winning source for jobs in library science and technology. If you're looking for a new job or an employer who wants to advertise a job opening, Job List has you covered. Job seekers can refine and filter searches by position type, employer, or location, post resumes, and automate alerts to never miss a posting. Employers can rest easy knowing that ALA reaches the engaged professionals that they want to hire. It also simplifies recruiting by offering flat rate pricing, discounted multi-ad packages, and enhanced postings for increased visibility. ALA Job List. It's where job seekers and employers get results. Visit joblist.ala.org for more information or to begin your search today. Get on the list. Roxane Gay is the best-selling author of Bad Feminist, Difficult Women, and Hunger, A Memoir of My Body, in addition to being a university professor and renowned cultural critic. She's also serving as Honorary Chair of Preservation Week this year, that's April 26th through May 2nd. Roxanne spoke with American Library's senior editor Amy Carlton about the importance of oral histories and social justice movements, and in telling women's stories, and much more. In the announcement that you would be this year's Preservation Week Honorary Chair, you specifically mentioned the important work of storytelling in social justice movements. Uh, so what, uh, what do you see as the role of libraries and librarians in helping to preserve the stories and voices of social change, especially for women who have been left out of the official history? Well, the unfortunate thing about history is that all too often it repeats itself because we forget how things really happened. And I actually think we recently saw that when, uh, during the Democratic debate, Pete Buttigieg um, said that that we're stuck between the interests of Donald Trump and then Bernie Sanders, who wants, who has nostalgia for the um, social action of the 1960s. And what happened in the 1960s was a great social upheaval, particularly in terms of civil rights, um, that made some of the equality that we have for people of color and for the LGBTQ community possible. And if you could just tell that was someone who was not well-versed in the history that made his life possible. And uh, that's why it's so very important to share these oral histories and every other form of history, whether it's saving pamphlets uh, and books and posters and uh, just knowing what the people who have contributed to social change went through and what they were up against and how they brought about change. What has, um, what's been the influence of storytelling and oral history on your own work? Um, well, you know, I draw from the storytelling of others all the time when I'm trying to figure out how I want to talk about a given issue. Oftentimes I want to see how others have talked about it before. And especially when you're talking about feminism, there is a great deal of very interesting storytelling about what the first and second wave feminists were doing um, in the 20th century and even before that. And it's just incredibly valuable, even if it's not going to have a direct correlation to what I'm writing, to just know, like, the foundation upon which I'm writing. 
So in addition to your books, um, the World of Wakanda series and other projects that you've done, last summer you you lost uh, you launched uh, Gay Magazine on Medium. And so how did how did that project uh, come about? And what are your what are your hopes for it? Medium approached me and wanted to do something with me because um, two years ago I had done a project called Unruly Bodies, which was uh, a month-long magazine where I asked people the question, what does it mean to live in an unruly body? And I published what they wrote in response. And it was really great because I got so many different kinds of essays about the embodied experience. And so we wanted to do something more ongoing. And so I decided to do Gay Magazine, where from every quarter I would do a themed issue. And in between, I would publish the kinds of pieces that speak to me, uh, which in general is people talking about something that they really care about, something that really moves them, something that matters to them. And uh, so far, I think we've assembled a really interesting body of work. Uh, you also recently started Here to Slay, which is a, a podcast. Do you... Um, do you see tools like podcasting as having a, a role in preserving oral histories for the future or as part of social justice work? It can be, certainly. You know, with Here to Slay, my co-host and co-creator, Tressie McMillan-Cottom, and I are very interested in particularly giving attention to black women, black scholars. We we do talk to other people sometimes, but mostly we, we we center the experience of black womanhood because we are experts on any given subject and rarely do we get to be heard. And mm -hmm. so uh, to be able to give black women this platform to talk about their work, whether it's um, Tatiana Fazliazade who talked about street harassment and um, her book, which I think is called Don't Tell Me to Smile, uh, which is actually very good. We talked to Chantel Miller uh, about her memoir and what she dealt with when she was sexually assaulted in California. Uh, just as a way of making sure that people don't forget the very real experiences that marginalized people deal with living in endangered bodies. And you see a lot of social justice movements podcasting and working in this space and uh, being able to give first-person narratives and making sure that those narratives have a, a, a broad reach. Um, how are you planning to use your platform as Honorary Chair of Preservation Week? You know, the main thing I'm going to do is make sure that I'm highlighting the really good work that the ALA is doing with regards to preservation, not only of oral histories, but of history in general. Uh, there are really amazing archives all over the world, and it's librarians who work to make sure that these archives are maintained and that a diverse range of materials are put into those archives. And I, I think that's important work that deserves to be highlighted. The 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution which granted American women the right to vote, was ratified on August 18, 1920. Schools and libraries across the country are celebrating its 100th anniversary all year long, 
and two librarians at Clarion University in Pennsylvania created an extensive bibliography of resource materials to help, an effort that earned them a 2018 Carnegie Whitney grant from the American Library Association. I spoke with Marilyn Harhey, one of the two grant winners, to learn more. This, let's talk a bit about this uh, bibliography that you and Janice Kruger created for the 19th Amendment, um, resources for the 19th Amendment. Um, what's, what prompted um, the creation of this? Who's, whose idea was it? Well, as you mentioned, um, Janice was my co-author, and I have been collaborating on a number of research projects. Uh, I teach collection development and genre fiction, and Janice has expertise on K through 12 topics. And I've also been a chair of the Women's Commission here on our campus. So when I saw the call for proposals for the Carnegie Whitney grant for bibliographies, the centennials of the 19th Amendment, which at that point were a couple years away, uh, seemed like a perfect fit that could produce a really useful collection development tool. Oh, great. And um you mentioned that the the idea for this germinated a couple of years ago. Um, how long did it take for you to compile this bibliography? Well, it did take a couple of years. We had a the grant itself is actually set up on a two year cycle, and so for the first year of the grant, we um, spent several months reviewing books and compiling the bulk of the bibliography, and then over the second year, wow. We kept adding to the bibliography because, of course, new books were being published because it was a, a hot topic coming up on the centennials. Um, but in that second year, we spent mostly writing articles and giving presentations to publicize the bibliography. We've had articles in things like uh, Pennsylvania Libraries Research and Practice, Teacher Librarian, and Technical Services Quarterly. And then, of course, in the second year, we made the completed bibliography um, publicly available as a LibGuide on the Clarion University of Pennsylvania Library website. And um, you mentioned that Janice works with, with K-12, and I, I initially first learned about this bibliography at the uh, American Association of School Librarians Conference in Louisville last year, um, mm -hmm. where you and uh, Janice did a great presentation. Um, is the bibliography geared toward a certain age uh, age level? Is it for 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 younger readers and younger learners, or is it um, encompass um, all ages? Well, actually, it does cover both adult and youth titles. It's not a comprehensive list of everything ever published on Suffrage. It was really designed as a collection development tool so that libraries could add materials uh, to their collection for the, when there was interest for the centennials. So for the adult materials, which I compiled, that meant that the book needed to be easy, easily available for purchase, like from a retailer or the publisher. And it also needed to be for a general reader. Um, I did include a couple academic works, if they were classics on the subject, um, and they were still easily available, or they addressed an important topic that wasn't covered by books for the general public. Janice compiled the youth resources. Um, the youth section uh, covers both fiction and nonfiction materials, but it also covers teaching materials and resources. And that list has been divided into um, separate lists according to age groups and grade levels. 
And um, you, you mentioned a few things just now, uh, but what what kind of materials can can uh, people find in this bibliography? Um, is there is there anything particular that stands out uh, in your opinion? Yeah, well, the materials really run the gamut. We've included fiction, nonfiction, teaching materials, and media. Um, one topic that librarians might be interested in beefing up in their collections surrounds uh, reexaminations re of the movement. Um, one area receiving particular attention um, are issues surrounding race and racism in um, the women's suffrage campaign. And so there is a separate list in the titles um, in the bibliography for materials on race and racism. Another idea um, is including fiction, videos, and recordings in your library offerings that might add appeal for some patrons. And there are also a separate list of fiction books and nonfiction materials to consult for ideas. There's also a separate list of biographies. One silly find was um, Dolly Parton's song about the 19th Amendment, which is on album the album 27, the most perfect album, which contains songs about all the constitutional amendments, and it was produced by the New York Public Library. Oh wow! Now the uh, the, the Whitney grant that you, that you and Janice received to compile this, how did that uh, affect your work? What what did winning the grant allow for? Well, it was. Obviously, um, a great thing, and plus it also served to get a lot of publicity for the bibliography. One of the reasons that I wanted to pursue the grant was because I was going to be on sabbatical during the first year of the grant cycle. So that allowed me um, to work on the bibliography extensively for a few months. So, for example, for the workflow, I actually handled all of the books um, that were available, which is something, of course, that most librarians can't do when considering a title. I would interlibrary loan them to be sure that they fit the criteria and to write the annotations. Um, and then I would also use the bibliographies in each work to check for items that I hadn't already considered. Janice also physically reviewed all the books she could obtain. Um, the article in Technical Services Quarterly talks all about the complete process of completing the bibliography. The majority of the grant funding, though, was used to travel uh, to conferences to publicize the work. We attended the American Library Association, um, the American Association of School Libraries, um, where we met, and then we also attended the Pennsylvania Library Association conference to publicize the grant. Oh, great. And um, have you? What, what kind of reactions have you received so far from from people who've used the the bibliography? Hey. It's been really great. I've had a lot of people who have mentioned using it for particular kinds of um, activities in their libraries from programming. We've had people that have been developing book clubs for the year on women's suffrage, and they've used it to find titles. Um, I actually used it for a, a program I put on um, that was a Girl Scout badge uh, project. So we've gotten really good feedback that it's been useful Oh, great! And um, this, and wh wh where can our listeners find if they want to, to to learn more or and check out the bibliography stuff? Where can they find it? They can find it on the uh, Clarion U University of Pennsylvania Library um, Lib Guides. 
Oh, great. And that's libguides.clarion.edu. And we'll, uh, we'll have a link to that, uh, on our, our Twitter and, and Facebook page for our listeners if they want to find it, along with some extra, um, resources that you sent to me, which, um, I think are very useful as well. We'll get some of those up also. Thank you for letting us get out the word. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Many thanks to Mickey Kendall, Roxane Gay, and Marilyn Harhey for speaking with us today. Join us next month as we look at sustainability efforts at libraries across the country. As always, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know how we're doing. Send us story ideas. Give us critiques, praise, anything at all we want to hear from you. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Stay safe out there, everybody.